Let's open up our Bibles, Romans chapter 8. Verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is the great therefore. I went back and looked, and I love how Kenneth Woost translates this. He translates it, Therefore, now, there is not even one bit of condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. None means none. And we need to receive that and understand that. And as I shared on Sunday, Paul is now going to launch into the glory section of our salvation into that amazing section of what it means to walk out our salvation as we look at it tonight. Recognizing 2 Corinthians 5.21, which we've read so often, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him, in Christ, where there is no condemnation. There cannot be condemnation in Christ Jesus. And it is one of the greatest truths of Christianity. More intimate, more personal, more powerful than any concept of religion in the world. And that is this idea of our actually being in Christ Jesus. When we recognize that, when we embrace that in our lives, we start to change in ways we never thought possible. We start to see things differently and hear things uniquely. We begin to live a life as I believe that we were created to live. The life that we were intended to live, which is a spiritual life and not a carnal life. To be in Christ Jesus, it is an absolutely exclusive condition, like Noah and his family in the ark. But it's a completely inclusive invitation. That is, anybody can be in Christ. Anybody can make that choice. But once you've made the choice to be in Jesus, you have another choice to make. And that is how you're going to live in Him. And Paul defines it in two ways. Again, as we talked about Sunday, the carnal man and the spiritual man. Both of whom, by Paul's definition, are in Christ Jesus. Only one is living more by the flesh and one is living by the Spirit. We're going to get into that tonight. So the question I have for you as we begin is, what state are you in? I'm not talking about Washington. I know that's a no-brainer. The questions I ask my kids just to make them feel good about themselves, they can answer a question really easily. The state, the state of the world right now is increasingly slavish. It is increasingly brutal. Increasingly depraved and sick and evil, and twisted, and we're to the point where it's not once every few years, or even once every few months, but it seems to be on a daily turnaround that we're hearing about some kind of explosion, attack, some kind of evil propagated in this world. People are changed right now in judgment, in condemnation, in fear, in bitterness, in terror. But think about why Jesus came. He quoted Isaiah 61 saying, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. 
He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he stops mid-verse right there because this is it. This is the favorable year of the Lord. Right now, judgment will come on this world. But right now in the age of grace, in the church age, it is His favorable year. No condemnation means freedom in Christ Jesus. And you need to understand that that freedom is as absolutely practical as not even being afraid when we hear about terror attacks. The freedom that is ours in Christ Jesus is being able to live out a life where we are not shaken. Where we are not worried. Where we are not fearful. Verse 2, he says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. This new law is all about freedom. Christians have a freedom that the world does not and cannot know. But if we're carnal Christians, we don't know it either. We lack it. We miss it. We don't understand it. If we're playing Christianity as a religion. But if we're spiritually minded, we start to sense there's something to this, this idea of total freedom. Eleutheroo is the word in the Greek. Eleutheroo, which means freedom literally in contrast to slavery. Eleutheroo is a political term. It was a very political term in Greek society, meaning freedom from the condition of slavery. It is literal deliverance out of slavery. Paul wrote in an earlier letter, Galatians chapter 3, verse 21, Is the law contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life then righteousness would indeed have been based on that law. But he says, the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. What a great verse. The scripture has shut us up. That the law was given by God, as we saw in Romans 5.20, that the sin would increase. The law in all of its goodness, in all of its perfection, shuts our mouths. Well, I'm a pretty good person. And then God gives the law and I say, I'm a... Can't speak to it anymore. But in Christ Jesus, and get this, I have been set free from sin. Not free to sin. Free from sin. And in the same way, I've been set free from death, not to death. Which means I don't live a life of death and of dying. Eleutheroo, freedom. Thucydides, an Athenian historian and philosopher of the 5th century BC, said the best constitution guarantees the greatest freedom. And so our founding fathers sought to do just that. To write a constitution that would guarantee our freedom. Plato, Aristotle, who were highly uh, admired by our founding fathers in America, they agreed, believing that this concept of freedom was essential to any governing state. That a government that was a good, true, solid government would be a government that protects freedom. Eleutheroo. Well, our constitution was supposed to proclaim that and it doesn't seem to be working out so well for us right now 
And there are people in this world, Islamists, who think completely otherwise. Who are about pursuing death. Who are about pursuing subjugation, not freedom. Of course you all are aware of the terrorist attacks in Brussels yesterday, or or in in, uh, Belgium. Yeah, in Brussels. The Islamic State, of course, has claimed responsibility. That's no surprise. The Islamic State, now think about that for a moment. The only state that they represent is chaos and fear and subjugation. It is not freedom. It is a, a governing system of sorts in that they actually do have a governing law. More on that in just a second. But what we see them doing in the world is nothing less than evil. By the way, there's another name for the Islamic State. Perhaps you've heard it. Dash. It's actually spelled D-A-E-S-H. Dash. Uh, John Kerry just used the word last week, and I'm like, Dash? What's he talking about? I thought it was that kid from The Incredibles, you know? (laughs) No, Dash is actually an Arabic word that has been used in the Arab world to describe this terror group for a long time. And it's the acronym, if you take all the first letters of the Islamic State of, uh, of uh, Syria and, or Iraq and the Levant, if you take that in Arabic, it, it, each letter, it spells out dash. And it is a disrespectful abbreviation. In fact, ISIS hates it. Because dash, in Arabic, sounds like fahish or, or fash, which means committer of heinous crimes. It sounds like Dahish, which means someone who hits someone else with a vehicle. And it's just disrespectful. What really bothers ISIS most about this phrase Dash, which I think I'm just going to start using because I like that, they particularly, particularly hate it because they want legitimacy as a state, as a ruling body, a government. Are they, right now, a state? That question has been asked. Well, they hold land, and they do have a government. It's Sharia law, and it is direct from the Quran. And it is, my friends, the prime example of a law of sin and death. And that's what I've been getting at with this. By the way, perhaps you heard today as well that the AP just uh, released information that 400 trained Islamist fighters from ISIS are already in the European Union and ready to go. Three brought about the carnage that we saw yesterday. The world is just starting to sense and experience and understand something that Israelis have been dealing with for 68 years. How do we deal with this world of terror. Well, for our purposes tonight, I can tell you how I deal with it. Here's the good news. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from all that. Set us free from the fear. Set us free from the terror. Set us free from the worry. Our God is in control. And Jesus Christ is coming again. And His Holy Spirit is still actively alive and at work in the world through His church. Provided the church is willing to let Him work through us. Provided we're willing to be people who are not carnally minded, but spiritually minded. And what we're going to get into now is some of the most practical teaching I think I've read from Paul, who tends to be pretty practical. He says 
the Spirit, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. In other words, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, brings life in Christ. The law of the the Spirit, the law of the Holy Spirit bringing life in Christ Jesus. This is not Spirit with a little s. As in, we've got the Spirit, yes we do. This is the Holy Spirit bringing life in Christ Jesus. It's part of the Spirit's function. So if you're in Christ Jesus and you're not sensing life, well, you need to go to the Spirit. Because it's what He does. It's what He brings about in us. Jesus said in John 6.63, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I have given to you are spirit and life. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.17, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, freedom, eleutheroo. That state of knowing I am a free person. I have been freed from sin, freed from the law, freed from death, free from fear and turmoil and everything else. Free to be. In Christ Jesus. Now the implications of all this are huge. Especially in the world as we see it right now. Because our message to this world is the only freedom you will find is in Christ Jesus. Only in Jesus. And ultimately only in Jesus' return is this world going to know the peace that we so desperately seek. Galatians 5.1 says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Yoke of slavery is that carnal mentality. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I was um, double-checking Cheryl's and my last will and testament yesterday. I do this anytime we go out of town, just make sure everything's in order there and, and, and up to date and says what we want it to say. And I was, yes, I was checking my will in preparation for leaving for Israel. Those of you going to Israel are like, excuse me? <laughs> just to make sure my kids are covered, you know. Uh, and especially because we've gone through the whole adoption, I want to make sure everything is, is copacetic. I'm not worried or fearful. I'm not. But I'm also not blind to the violent world in which we live. I know that God has numbered my days. I know that He has seen what every single one of them will be, and I know that He has seen when the last one will be. So I'm not concerned, whether here or there, whether in Tel Aviv or downtown Seattle, which scares me far more. Cowardly terrorism and senseless violence, gang, it is going to continue. In fact, it's going to ramp up until Jesus comes. You can count on it. As the age runs down, the violence will ramp up. But these things do not define those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you with me? These things do not define how we live our life. We are not in fear to be subjected to slavery again. And Jesus said in Luke 12.32, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen to gladly give you the kingdom. That's our promise. Verse 3, continuing, For the law, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. Now, Don't skip by that too quickly. 
You might read that and say, well, I know, God did. God sent Jesus, he died on the cross. I get that. Let's move on to something else more exciting, Rick. There aren't many things more exciting. Do you ever stop and ponder the wonder of the Incarnation? Let me put it simply for you. In creation, God made man in His own image. In the Incarnation, God made Himself after the image of man. What a turnaround. And so when we read here in verse 3, that He sent His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. It's the same as us saying, hey, we were made in the image of God. Hey, God was made in the image of man. What? That's the incarnation. That the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's absolutely astounding. Show me me a faith that even purports anything like that. A God who creates and then becomes His own creation so that He might, through doing so, save those who He created. The incarnation of Jesus. Now He says the law was weak. The law was weak. Not in and of itself, but truly the law, and we're talking about the law of Moses at this point, could only be as strong as those who attempt to keep it. The law really is only as good as those who follow the law. We have good laws in America. Many are just being violated and trampled upon. Lawlessness is beginning to reign supreme, as high as the presidency. The law is good, but we don't have the strength to keep it up. Israel found that out very quickly, what the law could not do. And by the way, that verse, what the law could not do, can also be translated the impossible thing of the law. The impossibility of the law. It was never meant to be the end all for Israel. Because you see, only a perfect man can keep a perfect law. So Paul says, God condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Fulfilled in us, not by us. And there's a critical difference there. The law is fulfilled in us by Jesus. Through His incarnation and through His keeping the law. He said, Matthew 5.17, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. He fulfills the law in us when we come to Him in faith. What exactly does that mean? It means that if Jesus had come, lived His life, and then simply got tired of it all and ascended back to heaven, we would be left utterly condemned. Because one man finally proved the law to be perfect. See, that's our condemnation right there. The law is perfect. How do you know? Jesus kept it. And if He kept the law perfectly and then just went back up to heaven, we would all be sitting here going, uh, 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 no hope. But He kept the law perfectly. David, David loved the law. Doesn't he say that multiple times throughout the Psalms? I love your law, he declared. But he didn't keep it. Solomon extolled the virtues of the law, but failed to live by it. As a matter of fact, straight down through history, all the prophets and priests and kings who declared the law fell woefully short of it. They couldn't keep it. 
So the law, perfect as it was, was made weak by human flesh. But he who is prophet and priest and king not only lived the law perfectly, but died to it. And in so doing, took our condemnation on his back. Again, this is the wonder of the incarnation. And in his resurrection, as he burst forth from that tomb on that glorious first Easter, he left absolutely no trace, not one bit of condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise God. And we're going to celebrate Easter on Sunday. It's the wrong Sunday, but we're going to do it anyway because we're Americans. If we were on the Israeli calendar, the, the lunar calendar, 360 days in a year rather than 365, it would be next month. It should be connected to Passover. So I always have my own little Resurrection Sunday celebration after Passover every year. We'll celebrate it Sunday. That's fine. I can always celebrate the Resurrection. In fact, any day of the week, I'm ready to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, verse 4 continuing. Said it would be fulfilled in us who, and listen to this, here we go, do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And now that verse finds a home. Remember on Sunday, I I told you in the King James translation, it's stuck at the end of verse 1. That's the wrong place for it. Because the fulfillment has to take place first. Understand that, that it's not... A condition. In the condition of no condemnation. See, that's how we walk. It's not that we walk and therefore receive no condemnation, though it's we receive no condemnation and now we can walk in the Spirit because we have not been condemned. Now that word is the key word, I believe, for the rest of the passage, the rest of our study tonight, and that is walk. Note that he says, those who are according to the, uh, who, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. It is potently practical. The idea of walking, peripateo, is the Greek word. To walk, and it means, it can mean to walk, literally, but the way it's used, more often than not in the Greek language, is to order one's behavior or conduct. To walk, to order my behavior, what I do, where I go, how I choose to spend my time and energy and waking hours. It's the walk of life. Ooh, the walk of life. (laughs) 1985, Dire Straits came out with the song, The Walk of Life. It was one of my favorite songs that year. still one of my favorite songs. I love it. It's about a young man named Johnny. Johnny's a musician. He's a street musician. He's trying to make it in the business and all he does is eat, drink, and sleep music. It says, here comes Johnny singing oldies, goldies, bebop, alula, baby, what I say. And it goes on to the chorus where where the front man of Dire Straits sings, he got the action. He got the motion. Yeah, the boy can play. Dedication, devotion, turning all the nighttime into the day. See, this Johnny, he hadn't made it, but it's all he thought about. Music, 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 and he was driving to get there someday. The walk of life. It reminds me of what Paul says, actually, in Philippians 3.12. Not that I have already obtained it or already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Johnny's walk of life and Paul's are two very different walks, aren't they? 
One is a walk of life in carnality. Hey, music's not a bad thing. I'm not saying that. But it's of the flesh. It's it's a, a carnal desire to become this famous musician. And yet Paul says, no, I press on. I, Paul has a walk of life. And that walk, that walk is the focus. And it is the passion. It's our, literally our mindset. Look at verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death. But the mindset on the Spirit is life and is peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able. Again, here we are. The carnal man and the spiritual man. The carnal man is the mindset on the flesh. The spiritual man is the mindset on the Spirit. And remember, both are believers in Christ. The man with the fleshly mindset, Paul is talking to believers who are thinking in the flesh instead of in the Spirit. And that's the choice that we have in how we live our lives. We can go either way. And as I said on Sunday, sometimes I'll go either way in one day. Sometimes I'll do it in the same hour. I can be completely carnal and then be spiritually focused again. The call on us as followers of Jesus is to live as spiritually minded people. To to be walking down that road, walking in the things of the Spirit. Remember that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, mentioned 17 times here in chapter 8, once in chapter 7, which is the carnal chapter. How do I get there? How do I gain this spiritual mindset? No doubt you've known people who are just very spiritual people. They pray all the time. They quote Scripture all the time. They just seem to really be in tune with God. And you say, that's what I want to be like, but it's such a struggle. How do I get there? Well, let me ask you practically tonight. What do you think about? Who or what gets your attention? What wakes you in the middle of the night? What draws your focus in the daylight? We do have a say in our walk, folks. We can choose how we're going to walk. I can live in the civil war of the soul, chapter 7, or I can live with the life and the peace of the Spirit, chapter 8. That's my call. That's my decision. I wonder sometimes, honestly, if some of us believers don't just kind of like the Civil War drama. You know, in a dysfunctional family, that's what tends to happen is people get drunk on the drama. They get used to the drama. And so when things are not dramatic and not out of control and not all emotional, people start to get uncomfortable. So they will literally do something to stir up drama in the family. That's dysfunctional. How many dysfunctional believers are there? who would rather be out there duking it out on the field of battle rather than just walking in the Spirit. Oh, I've cried out to the Lord so often on this. Oh, I'm struggling. You know, and we, we get into this mindset and we're, and we're fighting and we're striving. It's macho brothers who really enjoy fighting. And it's emotive sisters who are right at home with contention. And it's carnal. And it's a choice that we make. It is dysfunctional. 
It's the mindset of the flesh. And listen, Paul says that mindset is hostile toward God. When you see somebody who's hostile toward Christianity, you mention Jesus and they get all uptight. People who, who spew vile things. Uh, like a Facebook posting I was um, brought to my attention. And the post was a cartoon of this guy walking along and he says, Oh, I stepped in! And then he says an expletive for poop. Oh, I stepped in this! And then the next picture has him picking up his foot and looking at what he stepped in and it's a Bible. Yeah. Well, I had the same reaction. My son... Hayden is the one who alerted me to it. He said, Dad, I don't understand how people can say this kind of thing. And I said, Son, they say it because deep down they know it's true. Because deep down they know that the Word of God is legitimate. And it, they are hostile to it. And so they have to come up with some defense. And you know what the truth is? People can step on it. People can suppress it. They can bury it. There's one thing that people cannot do with the Word of God. They cannot change it. Just as Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, so the Word of God is eternal. It is unchanging. Flesh will fall away. The flowers of the field will die. But the Word of the Lord, it stands forever. It is unchanging. So they can make cartoons if they want. Whatever. It's the mindset of the flesh. And it is death. Why does he say the mindset of the flesh is death? I think it's because it kills the spirit. As I've said before, it's the dog you feed. You know, two dogs, a pit bull and a German shepherd, both put in the same pen, both fighting for territory. The dog that's fed is going to kill the other dog. Feed the spirit and the spirit will be strong. Feed the flesh and the flesh will be strong. The dog you feed is the dog who will win. The spiritual mindset is that godly walk of life. The carnal mindset is the earthly walk of life. So the question for you and for me tonight is, what do I feed? What do I focus on? What do I pour my energy and strength into? Turn over to Galatians chapter 5 briefly. Galatians chapter 5. Wholly consistent with what Paul is describing in Romans 8. In fact, these are parallel passages that that should be, I believe, taken together. Romans 8 and Galatians 5. But pick it up in verse 16, and I'm just going to read this through quickly so you can hear the contrast. I say, Paul says, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. See how clear that is? If you don't want to be carnal, walk by the Spirit. Well, again, how do I do that, Paul? The flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. These are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And then he gives the explanation. Here are the deeds of the flesh. They're evident. Immorality. Impurity. Sensuality. That verse right there is Netflix. (laughs) Verse 20 idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger. Anyone bursting this last week? 
disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because they're death. That is the mindset of the flesh. And it's so clearly described. But, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And then he says, if we live by the Spirit, let us what? Let us walk by the Spirit. In other words, let us order our behavior after the Spirit. Let us think spiritual thoughts and do spiritual things. And be lives that are after the Spirit of God. Let's not become boastful, challenging one another and envying one another. No, let's walk by the Spirit. It's all mindset. Am I going to be spiritual or am I going to be carnal? What food am I going to take in? What will be my drink? What kind of clothing am I going to wear? My hobbies, my entertainment, my intake in this world. Does it reflect the things of God or does it reflect the things of the flesh? And again, if it's carnal, it's just death and it's death to the Spirit. Just ask Koheleth. Koheleth, the preacher. He knows about all these things. Solomon. Boy, the... Book of Ecclesiastes is such an amazing book. I, I'd go through the whole thing tonight, we just don't have time. But Solomon says at the beginning of it, I, I set myself to test some things out. He had perfect wisdom, so he thought, in my wisdom, I decided to try things out to see what works. God gave him the wisdom, and he spent the wisdom for a period of about 12 years on wealth, He became the richest man ever to live. And that even goes by today's standards. George Soros has nothing on Solomon. Wine. He sought stimulants. That kind of pleasure to see if that could bring what he was longing for, looking for in life. Wealth didn't work. How about drunkenness? That didn't work. Women. Oh, my laundry. How many women did he have? Between his wives and concubines, Solomon could see a different woman every night for two years. It's unbelievable. And I've told you before, I have trouble just understanding one. He tried women and the pleasures of the flesh didn't work. He even tried wisdom. And remember what he said? Of much learning is just wearisome. To which all students say, Amen. He tried it all. And again, over 12 years, he did all this testing and investigating everything that the world had to offer. And this is what he came to. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. Ecclesiastes 12.8. He says in verse 13, The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God. Keep His commandments. What is that? Have a spiritual mindset. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. That's the deal, says the man who tried everything. 
Well, I think I'd like to try that for myself, Pastor. Well, go right ahead. But you're a fool. The whole reason Solomon was allowed to walk down that path was to show all humanity nothing but Jesus works. The mindset of the flesh is just death. By the way, you know how long we've been walking through the Word together here at the bridge? Just over 12 years. And it struck me how much, I don't know about you all, but in my life, the impact of being God's Word across these 12 years has been stunning. And I'm not calling myself Mr. Righteous except in Christ Jesus. But I'll tell you, the difference in my understanding of spiritual things now versus 12 years ago, in 12 years of pursuing this Word, has changed everything about my life. Less can attest to this. I am a more calm person now than I was 12 years ago. I'm more intent on seeking the Lord than I was 12 years ago. There's so much that He has done that I am aware of in my life and I'm so thankful for. And it is, a lot of it, I'll confess to you, is inadvertent. I have inadvertently been seeking the things of the Spirit for 12 years and it's overcoming me. And I praise God for that. I told you before, I can be carnal and spiritual on the same day. I still have plenty of carnality that needs to be worked out of me. I think God's going to let me live a long time to work it all out. But man, to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. Paul says it's life and... What? Peace. It is life and it is peace. Peace. So one way to tell if you're in the carnal mindset is are you striving? Are you stressed? Are you worried? Are you trying to force things? If you are striving, it probably has something to do with your frame of mind. And listen to this. For those who deeply love Jesus, back in verse 8 of chapter 8, He says, And those who are in the flesh cannot please God which vaults me right back to Cain and Abel. Cain was in the flesh. He couldn't please God. And it galled him. It frustrated him. It raised an ire in him that caused him to murder his own brother. Because he tried to do it the carnal way. Abel was a spiritual young man, bringing the best he had to the Lord because he loved the Lord. Cain learned firsthand, you cannot please God. You cannot seek God out in a carnal frame of mind. But then wonderfully, Paul says this, and Christians, listen, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anybody does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. See, everybody seeks ultimately the approval of a father. Some of you have had wonderful earthly fathers who loved you and supported you and approved of you. Some have not. Have struggled to gain the approval of a a father figure. And to you I would say, come to Father God. Come to your Heavenly Father. But the only way to seek to gain His approval, to please God, is in the Spirit. Why? Because God is Spirit. 
And those who worship Him, Jesus said, must worship Him in spirit and in truth. John 4.24 You can't please God in the flesh. He's not of the flesh. He is spiritual. You meet Him in spiritual things. You meet Him with a spiritual mindset. Does the Spirit of God dwell in you? I think that's the question. And Paul says it in verse 9, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now listen, we talked about this earlier with our staff. This is such a precious truth. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, does the Spirit of God dwell in you? Now, many of us would say, well, yeah. I mean, I prayed the prayer. I got baptized. I believe, so I think that means the Spirit of God dwells in me, right? The answer is yes. If you're not sure, yes. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God dwells in you. But understand what that word means. Dwell. The word dwell, oikeo, little word in the Greek, it means to take up residence. It means to be at home. Put the question that way. Is the Spirit of God at home in you? Is the Spirit of God at home in you? Is Jesus at home in you? Does He know where the fridge is? You know, Does He feel comfortable kicking off His sandals and putting His feet up? Taking a nap on the couch? Relaxing in the den of your heart? Does He dwell? Has He made His home in you? Is He comfortable being there? See, Jesus said in John 14, 16, I will ask the Father. And He will give you another Helper that He may be with you forever. That is, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. Because it does not see Him or know Him. But you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. And Jesus said, if anyone loves Me, He will keep My word. And my Father will love Him and we will come to Him and make our abode with Him. They move right in. They're the guests who take up residence full time. Is Jesus at home in my life? I hope so. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And you need to understand something, folks. His home in you, His home in me, is a mobile home. He doesn't stay behind when I go places. There's an old camp skit we used to do. I, I think every year at camp I saw this skit over and over. The idea of a kid who wants to go out and party and do stuff that Jesus wouldn't want to do. And so he takes Jesus and kind of nails him to the back wall and then goes out to do what he wants to do doesn't work that way. If Christ Jesus is in you, He is in you tonight. And if Christ Jesus is in you, He is in you everywhere you go. Is He comfortable there? It's kind of a different mindset. It is a spiritual mindset to consider that wherever I am, there He is. That's He wants to be. You know, He's like David. He never wants to be left behind. My David, my seven-year-old. Never wants to be left behind. Where are you going, Dad? I'm just going to walk down to the end of the driveway and get the mail. Can I come? 
That's Jesus. I want to be where you are. I am in you. You go, I go. You stay, I stay. In his own words, I am with you most of the time, except, you know, when I take a break. I am with you always to the very end of the age. He has said, Hebrews 13.5, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Now, for my part, I can ignore him. I can disregard him. I can, I can back off church attendance, cease fellowshipping with his people. But you know what? Once he comes to make his home, he's here. And he is here to stay. And i got to tell you, He's not comfortable in carnal situations. Am I, by the choices I make in my life, making Jesus uncomfortable in my home, the home of my heart? Or is He relaxed and joyful and welcome there all the time? Now think about what having Jesus around the house really means. Verse 10. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. I want you to jot something down in your Bibles if you have a pen or something to write with. Take that word alive, cross it out, and write in the word life. Because that's the translation. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Real life, true life. And by the way, the Spirit here in verse 10 is your Spirit. Okay, in this case it is not talking about the Holy Spirit. He says, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit, your Spirit, is life because of righteousness. You're alive, man. You're living. You're really living. Having life. Verse 11 But if the Spirit, oh, this is powerful, who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. And we're going to take up that verse on Easter Sunday. Verse 12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Listen to the the encouragement of the Apostle Paul. He says not only should you deny carnality and try to live in the Spirit, kill the carnal. Put it to death. Lay that thing down. Put it down as it were. The phrase for, you know, I've got a rabid dog, I've just got to put him down. Or Reggie, i just got to put him down. You know, whatever it takes. I don't have a rabid dog, I just have a problem dog. And i got to tell you, I've thought about putting him down many times. Put it down. Paul, he's saying, don't just feed the good dog, kill the bad. Put away the bad dog. Well, how do I do that? By choosing life in the Spirit. Every time I make spiritual choices, I am killing the flesh. See, it works conversely. If I'm making carnal choices, I am killing the Spirit in my life. But if I'm making spiritual choices, I am putting to death the flesh. And I win. Understand this is completely contrary 
to our natural tendencies. I don't want to put to death the things of the of the flesh. Because I make the things of the flesh work for me. I might seem soft or weak if I if I do the things of the Spirit. The Spirit is so, so much more powerful if we will tap into Him. Choose life in the Spirit. How? Paul puts it this way, Philippians 4, 8. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Walk in these things. Think about these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, Paul says, and the God of peace will be with you. See, the world would tell you that good living is hard and hard living is good. And it's a lie of the devil that living for the things of the flesh, those tangible, experiential things, that that's a good thing. Listen, how many, let me ask you this question. How many of you have found good living to be a struggle? Now be honest. If you have, then you're in good company. Rich Mullins has a song just that, that was called, It's Hard to Be Like Jesus. The whole song, he's just saying how hard it is. I'm a good, you know, since I am a good Midwestern boy, Get an honest day's work if I can get it. I don't cheat on my taxes. I don't cheat on my girl. I've got values that would make the White House jealous. <laughs> but I do get a little much over-impressed when I think of Peter and Paul and the apostles. I don't stack up too well against them, I guess. But by the values around here, I ain't doing that awful. He says it's hard to live like Jesus. Maybe it's because we're trying to do it in the flesh. Maybe the struggle to do good things and to be spiritual is such a struggle because I'm trying to do it in the carnal man. What? Trying to be spiritual through carnality? Yeah, let me give you an example. I set aside daily quiet time and I'm going to religiously keep it. And suddenly it becomes a burden. I memorize scripture. I only watch the Hallmark Channel. I refuse the news and by the way I'm gluten free I'm trying man I'm trying to do I'm trying to do the, and I'm just wearing myself out okay those aren't bad things to do but the key to a spiritual mindset and I hope we all get this it is not mental determination I am determined to be a spiritual man it won't work. You will exhaust yourself. So what do I do? Well, how does Paul say we put to death the deeds of the body? How does he say it? By the Spirit. Look at that again. Verse 13. If you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit... You are putting to death the deeds of the body. You will live. Oh, I wish I had known this 20 years ago. I would have saved myself an awful lot of hard religious work. That we put the deeds of the body, of the flesh, to death by the Spirit. 
See, Paul says in Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, it's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. There's no condemnation. And where there's no condemnation, the Spirit is free to be at work, putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Man, if you fight the deeds of the flesh with the flesh, you're going to find yourself wiped out. So ask the Spirit to do it. Just start saying, Lord, I've got a day mapped out ahead of me that looks pretty wearisome. A lot of good things here. But Lord, would You by Your Spirit conduct me through the day? That's a completely, that's a spiritual mindset. I'm going to say, Father, I want to do what You want me to do today. Just having a a prayer with a sister, and I won't name her, but we're just praying a little bit a a while ago, and and that's the issue. Uh, The idea of I've got so much to do, and, and it's wiping me out, and so many different things. Lord, show me what is of You. See, I absolutely believe He will. I absolutely believe He does. This is not playing church. This is not religiosity. Oh Lord, give me a day that blesses Thy name. No. No. Holy Spirit, I don't have a clue. But you know exactly what you want to see accomplished in my life today. Move before me. Help me to follow you. By the Spirit, we put to death the things of the flesh. Verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Notice that. The Spirit leads. He does not drive. He is the shepherd who goes out ahead, not pushes from behind. And if you are led by the Spirit, Paul says, these are sons of God. And that includes all you ladies. Remember, if we guys have to be the bride, you have to be the sons. Okay? Verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading again to fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And this is the first time in the Scriptures where we discover we get to cry out, Abba. We can call Him Abba Father. Now, quickly, back at Christmas time, we talked about this. But for those of you who missed this and didn't get to hear it, this is one of five times the word adoption is used in the New Testament. Five times that adoption is used, and it is always in the same context. It always bears the exact same meaning. We see it right here in Romans 8.15. We have received adoption, the spirit of adoption as sons. And again, the spirit right there is our spirit. It's not the Holy Spirit at that point. We have received the spirit, the the sense, the mindset of adoption in our spirits as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Down in chapter 9, verse 3, look down there. Paul says, I wish I myself were a curse separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons. So the adoption was offered to Israel before it was offered to us. But it's again the same context, adoption as sons, all five times. That's the way it's written, adoption as sons, adoption as sons. And Israel right now is still awaiting 
final adoption. So are you. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 says, When the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive, here it is again, the adoption as sons. And then finally, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. Don't get lost on the word predestination. We will get to that later in chapter 8. Probably not tonight. But the adoption as sons. Now here's what I want you to remember from Christmas if you heard me talk about this. And if you haven't heard, listen closely. It is not by adoption that we become children of God. Okay, we are not adopted into the family. We become children of God by being born again. We are born into the family of God, not adopted. It's a different concept. And the born into comes first. We are children of God. As many as received Him, John 1.12 to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Born again. Which is why, by the way, I say in this world, this world is not made up of the children of God. This world is made up of the creation of God. The children of God are those who believe in Him. If you don't believe in Him, you're not a child of God. We like to generically say, well, all mankind are God's children. No, we're not. Only if you have been born again into the family of God. Born the second time. And Jesus made that clear, John 3.3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 3.5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is just flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. So we must be born again to become children of God. Well then, what's all this adoption talk about? The word adoption, huilthesia. Such a critical word. And again, this is something talked about five times. Only five. Five is the number of grace, by the way, in the Bible. Five times in the New Testament we hear the word huiothesia, which is the adoption as sons. And specifically, huiothesia describes a son of inheritance. We are all children of God. We are awaiting the finalization of our adoption to our inheritance as sons. See the difference? Right now we're His children. But the adoption has not been finalized. Skip down to verse 23. It's the other mention. The fifth mention of adoption in the New Testament. Romans 8.23 And not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, we ourselves, grown within ourselves, note this, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So it hasn't happened yet. We groan for it. We long for it. As His kids, we desire that full and final adoption. But Paul also says, as we just read in verse 15, that we have the spirit of adoption right now. So did my kids the moment Cheryl and I took custody of them in Ghana. We went to the 
went to the orphanage, a day that is emblazoned, almost the whole entire day is emblazoned on my mind. I remember showing up at the orphanage, stepping out of the, of the car, the taxi. George was our taxi driver, I love George. Had that Ghanaian man's laugh. <laughs> so funny. Got out of the car, and here comes 11-year-old Anna Marie, flying out of the front door of the orphanage. Just about broke my back jumping on me. And we left that day with Anna Marie, Naomi, and David, and from that moment on, they were my children. I had the... Supernaturally, the same sense of protection that I have for my biological kids. The same love, the same intent desire to raise them in the Lord. The same everything. It, just, it was so weird being in the hotel room then with those three kids. My biologicals at home and my adopted kids here. And they weren't even, the adoption wasn't even finalized. It was finalized in Ghana, but it was not finalized in the USA. But they were my kids. And they knew it. And they had the spirit of adoption, though the finality was not there yet. And that's where we are with Jesus. We have the spirit of adoption, born again as children of God. Our last will and testament, you need to understand, even then, Cheryl's and my wills immediately reflected Honorine, Naomi, and David as our own equal division of all of our vast fortune and assets. I think it comes out to about 728 a person. They were full heirs of anything we had for them. Equal in part with our biological children. And yet not quite adopted. They had the mindset before it was finalized. That's what we have. We have the mindset, the spirit of adoption. Even as we eagerly await our adoption as sons, the huiothesia, the finalization of it. And so, so because of that, right now, today, tonight, we can cry out, Abba! I've told you before, it's one of my favorite things to hear in Jerusalem. And you hear it all over the place. Those of you traveling with us in in 10 days, you need to listen for it. Because I guarantee you, we will walk the streets of Jerusalem and you will see little kids run by and you will hear them call out, Abba! Abba! Daddy! And there are a few things that mean more to me in life than hearing David say, Good night, Dad. I just, I can't explain to you how much I love hearing him say, Dad. And that's the intimate, personal name that we have been given to call our Heavenly Father. He is our Abba. How do we know? I mean, how can we be absolutely sure? The Spirit. Look at verse 16. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. It's not a guessing game. It's not sitting around wondering, hoping against hope. Through blind faith, we wander through this walk of life. No. The Christ in you walk of life by the Spirit of God is real life. Absolutely true. And He walks with me. And He talks with me. And He tells me I am His own. And the joy we share as we tarry there None other has ever known. What a great old hymn. Got to pull that one out.
Now I need just five minutes. Max, verse 17. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, let that blow your mind. If indeed we suffer with Him so that we may also be glorified with Him. Wait, what? We were doing so well. (laughs) And old Paul had to pull out suffering again. What is wrong with this guy? I love this. You can't see this in the English translation, but in the Greek it comes off as poetic. Let me see if I can get it right. He says, if we sumpaskomen suffer with, inakai sundosastomen. If we sumpaskomen, inakai sundosastomen. That is, if we suffer with Him, then indeed we will be glorified with Him. And it is a beautiful, beautiful suffering. In fact, it's beautiful on this side of things as the glory to come. Let me explain. If we suffer with Christ, we will be glorified with Christ. But don't misunderstand. Suffering is not a condition for your salvation. It is a condition of your salvation. That is, you don't suffer to get it. You suffer because you got it. How does that work? I thought it was supposed to be life and peace. Paul just said that. Life and peace in the Spirit. Now you're talking about suffering. Exactly. It is a condition of being in Christ. If we are in Him, we will suffer with Him. Now there is, there is suffering, there is persecution, overt external suffering in the world. Paul talked about it. And he said, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to go through this. Acts 14.22, he said, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Expect it. Remember recently we talked about how the first century church expected to suffer. They assumed persecution was on the way. So should we. Not fearfully, but joyfully. It's going to come. Expect it. But this is not that. This is a different kind of suffering. It's not suffering for Jesus in the world. It is suffering with Jesus. With is the operative word. The Greek language is very clear here. Note this. If indeed we suffer with Him. As He suffers, I suffer with Him. Wait, wait a minute. Did... Didn't his suffering end at the cross? No. In fact, I would say it only got started at the cross. Oh yeah, his physical suffering. Jesus is in his glorified body. Absolutely. Resurrected. Awesome. Read Revelation chapter 1. But he suffers right now. He still suffers. He suffers in an ongoing, daily, continual... Intercessors often do suffer. And Jesus is the great intercessor. Praying constantly for you, for me. Suffering all the things that go on in our lives. Suffering the pain of this world. And if Christ is in me and He's suffering, guess what? I'm going to suffer with Him. I'm going to suffer the pain that Jesus suffers as He looks out over a lost world. As He looks out over a sinful nation. As He looks out over school systems preaching a doctrine of gender confusion 
that is coming on like a flood, He suffers. And I suffer with Him. We're told down in verse 22, creation groans. Creation's suffering right now. Oh, because of global warming? No. Creation is suffering, groaning, awaiting the revelation of the sons of God. Our huiothesia, the adoption of sons. Creation's waiting for that. Groaning. We groan in the world today. Verse 23, Paul will talk about that. And the Spirit of God, even the Spirit of God, verse 26, groans. Groaning's too deep for words. That word groan, gang, it implies suffering. There is an ongoing suffering. And Paul's meaning here, I believe it is implicit suffering. That is, it is inward, it is covert suffering with Jesus. Why? Because I have a spiritual mindset. And I guess I can tell you this, if you don't want to suffer with Jesus, just maintain the carnal mindset and you'll never think about the things Jesus thinks about. And you won't suffer with Him. You can ignore the things of the world that break His heart. Or you can love Him and live for Him, knowing that you will suffer with Him. Spiritual mindset. I saw on the news when the attacks took place just yesterday now. And I thought, I prayed it, I said it out loud. Lord, this is not a world I want to live in anymore. I don't want to live in this world. I don't want to live with terror. I don't want to live with sin. I don't want to live with the ugliness and the evil and the heartache and the heartbreak and the contention. And all. I don't want it. I could really do without it. I don't want to live in this world. And then he reminded me that that has always been the mindset of his people. You see, the spiritual mindset is not looking for what this world can give them. The spiritually minded start to realize, wow, as I get into that mindset, I'm a stranger here. I am an exile in this world who desires, Hebrews 11.16, a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called our God, for He has prepared a city for us. My friends, there is no world, new world that we can sail to. If the election goes bad, feel free to move to another country. It will do you no good. We have reached the uttermost parts of the earth and we have found sin everywhere we go. It's just not going to get better in this world. How can you say that smiling, Rick? Because I know a better world is coming. And I know Jesus is returning. And I know, for I consider, verse 18, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The glory is going to be revealed to us, not in us. What do you mean? It's His glory that's going to be revealed. It's His glory that is going to be, well, reflected. Woost puts it this way. I thought this was beautiful. It will be a reflected glory, reflected from the Lord in His glory, that will make all the saints radiant when they return to earth with the Lord Jesus in the second advent. 
His glory is going to be revealed to us. We're going to return with Him. And as that glory shines, it's just going to bounce off of all of us. I am so excited to be losing hair because that's more glory that can bounce off of my forehead. (laughs) Reflecting the glory of the Lord rather than the glory of the neon lights in the Bridge Fellowship. (laughs) 2 Timothy 1.10, Paul says, When He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed... For our testimony to you was believed. And I can tell you that is going to be a glorious day indeed. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are so good. And your spirit, oh, your spirit is life and peace. And I believe, Father, every one of us in here who are in Christ Jesus have experienced that life and that peace. We have also experienced the death of carnality. We have experienced the things of the flesh. We have seen the difference. And so, Lord Jesus, my prayer to you tonight is, Holy Spirit, by you, we pray, help us walk with a spiritual mindset. Putting to death the deeds of the flesh, focused on the things of the Spirit, and not by human will or intention, but by the power, Father, of your Holy Spirit in us. Help us to be a righteous people in Christ Jesus. And in His name we pray. Amen.